All right, hi gang. Uh, welcome once again to the Exhale Heart and Chart Investing Podcast, sponsored by Tricord Investment Advisors. Uh, I'm Larry McDonald, your host. And this week, we are following up with a part two to my debunking the well-known investment myths that I believe are out there. Uh, last week, we talked about the myth that you need to be a long-term investor and long-term uh, you know, investing cures all ills, given enough time. Uh, so if you haven't listened to that one and you sort of want to pick up on some of the details that we're going to talk about today, you need to go back and, and, and listen to that one. Uh, this week, part two, if you will, uh, the myth is going to be that you can't time the market. So that will be an interesting, um, this, I, I think you're going to have some fun with this one this week uh, because that's an absolute uh, pariah when it comes to the basic investing community. So we're going to dive right in and um, I think maybe we'll start out with just let's define market timing. And I took this right from Investopedia, Investopedia's site, put in market timing and here's what they say. What is market timing? Market timing is the act of moving in and out of the market or switching between asset classes based upon using predictive methods such as technical indicators or economic data. Because it is extremely difficult to predict the future direction of the stock market, investors who try to time the market, especially mutual fund investors, tend to underperform investors who remain invested. All right. So here we go right away, I think, with standard industry uh, paradigm. And I was looking for a definition. And I think that the first sentence here did give us a definition. But then even in Investopedia, they give an opinion. And they sort of bash market timing that it can't be done and you're going to lose money and you're not going to do as well as investors who remain fully invested. So even when you try to get a definition from a supposedly neutral source, they're going to offer their opinion on this. And so this is what frames some of the thinking when it comes to, quote, market timing. So let me just say that if I'm going to read this definition, and I'm going to agree in part with what they've said here. But the minute you use this one key word, and this is where we all get tripped up, and that's the word predict. Whether it's on predictive methods or how difficult it is to predict the future direction of the stock market, the minute that word gets used, we have to drag out the crystal ball. And of course, you and I both, anytime an investment manager, an investment guru wants to try to tell me they have the, quote, crystal ball, I'm running the other way, right? Well, I agree. If, if this was my definition of market timing, I would say I don't want any part of it either. So I think what we have to do is we have to reframe what it means to market time because it is not about prediction. I can't possibly predict what the market is going to do today, tomorrow, next month, next year. Nobody can. 
So then what am I talking about when we talk about market timing, right? Uh, and so that's what we're going to spend the rest of this podcast kind of delving into. Now, I want, um, I want to introduce you, uh, and if you want to dig more into this topic, if you really want to, to you know, pull back the, uh, the curtain on it all, I'm going to give you two publications, two books that when I really back, oh, over 10 years ago, started really pressing into this because I just knew there had to be a better way than setting it, forgetting it. There's two of them that really had the biggest effect on me. Uh, one of them was a book by Leslie uh, Masonson um, and was called All About Market Timing, right? So that's, that's a great publication. And then probably the one that had the biggest effect on me was written by a guy named John Sosnoe. It was, it's called Lasting Wealth is a Matter of Timing. That, you know, that book right there did it for me. Because here was a very credible guy talking common sense language to me. He was willing to speak outside the box. And I would highly recommend this book for anybody that wants to know more about the viability of market timing. And so I'm just going to take just a couple little quips out of this book because I think they're, I think they're just awesome. All right. First of all, in his preface, he quotes the guru Kenny Rogers. All right. And here's the quote from Kenny Rogers. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. Amen. Go to the Bible and there's a similar passage in the Bible that just says there's a season for everything. All right. Um, And so it matters. The cyclical nature of things matter. And you need to be smart enough to be able to know when to react to the different seasonal, cyclical natures of things. And in this case, we're talking about the stock market, right? Okay, so, and I'm going to take another quote from his book too. And I think I highlighted this. uh, It's right up front in his first chapter. And here's what he says. I believe. Now, uh, oh, well, and this was written uh, 1999, I believe, is when this book was written in the uh, late 90s, all right, uh, 97. All right, so understand when he's writing this. So before the market crashes uh, in the early 2000, before 2008, uh, this was long before any of that. Here's what he says. I believe that we can save an entire generation from financial ruin during the next bear market if we can get the critical message of the importance of a disciplined risk reduction out to and accepted by middle America. Wow. I wish he had been able to do that. I wish I had known of him back in 1997. It would have saved me a lot of pain. It would have saved my clients a lot of pain through the early 2000s when that market corrected. Um, And this is what really spurred me on to make a lot of the changes and to launch Tricord in the better way. And so here's what we talked about last week. We talked about the idea that the market's always going to go up and it will always go up and and reach a level higher. And what and, and what the fallacy of that thinking really is, even though it's, it has happened to this point, and we used 
Uh, I used the example of the Nikkei from last week and how it is anywhere close to where it was at the peak. But how about the Dow? I mean, not the Dow, the S&P. We didn't even talk about that last week. I didn't use it as an example. But uh, let's look, just look at the S&P 500, right? And what I want to show there is on, on January 1st of 2000, the S&P stood at 1469. Now today, it's at 2270, which is a 54% increase over where it was, right? 2270 uh, to 1469. Now, if you just take an average, let's just say, forget about that, that's 17 years, the market's gone up 54% in 17 years, all right, that's about a, a little over a 3% annual average return, 3.2%. So again, here we are, we're in the set it, forget it mode, and regardless, our money has made 3.2% for us, and that's static money. That's money that just, you put it in on January 1st, 2000, and you just, you kept it. You didn't change it. You didn't do a thing. You put your head in the sand, and now you've made 3.2% on your money to this point over the last 17 years. That doesn't count when you had to take money out. What was the timing of that? Good timing, bad timing, none of that, okay? Not a cash flow. It doesn't take into account any of that. So again, let's just understand that if, if we just set it and forget it, then we're at the mercy of the market. Oh, and by the way, that we didn't breach the 1469. We did it briefly in 2007. So there was a market high in 2007 before we had the big crash. And it hasn't been until, oh, it, it, almost 2013 that we, you know, that we breached the 2000 high of 1469, right? And then the actual high, again, was about 1563 in, in 2000. And we didn't, you know, it, the market didn't go past that until, you know, into uh, 2013, right? First quarter. So, you know, again, all the way 13 years, you know, worth of nothing, zero, and it hasn't been until just since 2013 that the market, of course, has gone bonkers. And again, why is that? QE. That's a simple answer to that. QE, quantitative easing, has made all the difference in the world to the markets, you know, since the crash in 2008. So we're predicating a lot of the talk that we have here and all these numbers based upon total government intervention and a juicing of the markets that's even enabled us to maintain what we've got even now, the 3.2. So again, to, to try to think that moving forward, that we're going to have that kind of intervention and that we can't become subject to long periods of market downturn is just, it, it, it's not wise to think that that can't happen. I'm not pulling out the crystal ball, and I'm not predicting it. But what I'm saying is that what are, you, what are we doing to prepare for it? And as we saw last week, the beauty is even if the market does go through those kinds of, of, of long-term cycles, that if we apply some discipline risk reduction strategies to what we're doing, we can still make money and make a lot of money, do very well. 
even when the overall market isn't cycling. So with that, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play upon a bit of a comment that I received from a young guy from the podcast last week, and his comment was, well, yeah, I get this. This all makes sense to me, but what's the alternative? Why, why wouldn't we want to do this? Why wouldn't uh, you know, market timing, if you want to call it, risk reduction the strategies, why, why wouldn't we want to do that? What, what, what else is, is there out there? Now, he doesn't have any money in the market. He hasn't been subject to the pie chart, and he hasn't been subject to what we're going to talk about today, modern portfolio theory. So he didn't have a compare to what. Most of you, I'm guessing, probably will. Uh, but we're going to do a little bit of you know, retrenching here, and we're going to talk this week about where, where did we come from? What is the modern you know, investment philosophy, where did it come from? Why is it the way it is? I guess before we actually can say, and so I think maybe there might be a better way. All right. So I'm going to react to that as well as let's talk about this whole thing about market timing. So where we have to start with that and in a lot of the, what I'm going to take now, it comes from my own experience, but my sub advisor Hedgeable did a great job with a white paper that they wrote and I'm going to put a link to their white paper out there if you really want to read the details of what they're going to talk about in in, in more depth uh, you'll, you'll have a link out there that you can go to and this white paper by Hedgeable is called Hedgeable Downside Protection White Paper so uh, you want to read the details of it please go out there and, and, and pull back the curtain get down into the nitty-gritty but basically they start their white paper with a background you know where do we come from and it's called modern portfolio theory it was developed in 1952 uh, by Harry Markowitz and and basically we're using this same basic philosophy today you know ever since 1952 right and the basic assumptions here are this that certain asset classes operate in a certain way based upon historical data. And what I mean by a certain way is they tend to work, number one, they tend to produce a certain return over time, which is very subjective because you have to pick certain time periods. But the point is, you know, that, that they're, they have a certain history all right, in return as well as in correlation to other asset classes. So what I mean by that is how do stocks, let's just use a major category, tend to correlate to bonds? In other words, when bonds go up, what happens to stocks? When stocks go down, what happens to bonds? In general, the correlation between them. All right. And so now you start out with an analysis and assumptions in those two categories. What's the optimal, what's the return in general, and how do they, does that particular asset class correlate to other asset classes? Now you take that data and you produce what's called a mean variance optimization, MVO. Again, I don't want to get real technical with you, but again, they look to try to maximize the risk for the return. 
And again, in principle, in theory, this makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, 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 if I was going to go along this line again, I'd want to be along the MVO curve, all right? That why should I take more risk than I need to for a return? Why should I have lots of risk for basically the same return that I can get with less risk if I just structure my portfolio differently? So I get it. You know, I understand all of this and it's all good. So once you go through that calculation, once you go through that process, the modern portfolio theory and the MVO curve, you come up with weightings, right? And again, this is your typical pie chart. And so you might have a, a typical, let's start on the, at the high end and just say, oh, a 60% stock, 40% bond. You know, after you go through all the process and you determine what kind of investor you are, now you have a 60-40 mix. All right, that's the pie chart. Now, that can get real complicated from there, and sometimes I shake my head at this because I see so many different layers even now when it comes to, well, what kind of stock asset classes do I want and what kind of bond asset classes? And I'll, I'll look at people's portfolios. Sometimes they'll bring their... Their, their statements to me, you know, they, they aren't with me and they, we're talking through the possibilities and they might own 10, 12, 15 different holdings, mutual funds or ETFs to, to get that. I, I'm just, I'll shake my head over all of that because you've just, you've diversified yourself. You might as well just own the, own the flat out index, save yourself a lot in expenses um, and it, it, it's not that exact science, all right? They'd love you to believe that it is, but it's just not. All right, so I, I kind of went down a little rabbit trail there, but let's go back to our 60-40. So the typical way that this works is I start out with my 60-40, and over time, quarterly, annually, semi-annually, whatever your, again, whatever your manager might be or whatever your particular uh, management philosophy is, and that gets out of whack because one of those asset classes typically will outperform the other. So let's just say over time you get to the point where you have 54% stocks now of the, as the total of your portfolio in value and 46% in bonds. Bonds, bonds have gone up, stocks have gone down. And so, that the, again, the modern portfolio theory teaches that, all right, now that we've gotten to a certain point, we need to rebalance and we need to sell the winners and buy the losers and we need to get back to 60-40. There it is. R lather, rinse, repeat. That's what it just happens over and over and over again. So you're constantly selling your winners, buying into the losers because you are bought into the theory that they will cycle and sooner or later my bad ones will do well and my good ones will do badly and so you know I'm going to buy things when they're cheaper um, and overall you know have an asset allocation that's static all right so there we are there's there's the compared to what I've gone through my analysis, I've done my pie chart, I've allocated based upon my risk tolerance, and now we pretty much just crank along and rebalance on a regular basis that allocation. And that allocation may change as you get older. It typically is recommended, 
And so you may start out with a, oh gosh, 90-10 stocks to bonds, then it goes to 85-15, then it goes to 75-25. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of different approaches to that. But here's where we're going to start with maybe kind of starting to debunk some of that. All right. Diversification. And again, the pie chart. Let's diversify into different asset classes. All right. Well, I, you don't have to go very far. Uh, 2008 to be exact, all right? Uh, really starting in 2007, when if you really want to go from the peak of the market into March of 2009, and you take a look at the correlation between all the asset classes. And for the most part, there was a very high correlation. What I mean by that is this. Stocks tanked, right? We all know that. They tanked. Now, there were degrees of tanking depending upon what kinds of stocks you owned. But not only did stocks tank, but pretty much everything else tanked as well. Now, again, not to necessarily the same degree as stocks, but there was a much greater correlation. Nobody was immune to drawdown. If, if this thing worked perfectly, you should be able to balance things out, and we should have seen portfolios much more hedged Again, the risk would have been managed to a much greater degree than it was. So it was a real wake-up call. You know, the 2008 into nine uh, market downturn, really, again, starting in 2007, was a real wake-up call to everybody when it came to this whole MPT, market um, portfolio theory, modern portfolio theory. And everybody got kicked in the teeth a lot more than they thought they would. People who thought that their portfolios were a lot more conservative than they were um, really suffered a lot. All right. So again, what's the um, you know what's the answer to this? All right. So if if not that, if some of the previous thinking is flawed, if some of the previous theories don't really work out like we thought, then what? You know where does that leave us, right? And so, you know, again, I'm, uh, you're going to need to read the Hedgeable white paper, and I thought it was a great example that they used um, uh, to show that if you could stay out of the majority of the downturns in the market, so we'll, we'll just take since you know since Sosnowy wrote his in '97. The, the big downturn going 2000, 2003, and of course 2000 through 2007 and 2009, it makes a huge difference. I mean, crazy. And so, they get, you know, Hedgeable gives an example from Bridgewater where Mike Kane, the CEO, used to work at how this thing can make such an incredibly big difference. And again, I'll leave it to you to look at the chart, but just... They did it. It matters. Uh, their their drawdown, max drawdown through the the crisis um, in two thousand and eight, fourteen point one eight percent. That cut out seventy five percent of the losses. So the minute you begin to do that kind of thing, it makes a huge difference. So once you get back in the market and what kind of capital you've protected and what you have to work with. All right, so that was flaw number one, right? We talked about that, was that, um, you know, that um, the global paradigm is we got to be diversified. That didn't work. 
Second thing was drawdowns don't matter. So that 50%, 40% drawdown that you might have experienced in two, through 2007 through 2009 doesn't matter. It's okay. That's part of the deal. You just need to, you know, keep your head in the sand, keep investing, and it'll all work out in the end. Well, all right. Really? I think we showed that last week. Uh, how about 3.2% when it comes to the S&P over the last 17 years? So I think that also is flawed. The drawdowns don't matter. They matter a lot. All right. So let's go to flaw number three that Hedgeable talks about. Market growth isn't guaranteed. And again, we go back to my example of the Nikkei from last week. Who says the market has to grow? Who says that it's inevitable that the market's going to be higher than it used to be at some point in the past today? Who says so? Is it happened to this point? Again, yes, I admitted that last week. But to assume that, that's just crazy. All right? It's just, I think it's just, you know, we, we can't make that assumption and build real wealth. It just doesn't happen. And, and Hedgeable happens to use the Japanese stock market as one of their examples in this. And I hadn't even read this yet before I did the one last week. So that's, that's just a fallacy. Uh, another example they use is the real estate market. And I think there's great money to be made in the real estate market for sure. But to assume that my real estate values are going to do nothing but go up and I'm going to be able at some point to sell my holdings for something more than what I bought them for, that's not a reasonable assumption. It's not a, it's not a truth, and it's not an absolute. All right. So so what do you do? So, so again, here we are, and if we're going to, quote, call it a myth that we can't time the market, then what can we do? And I think what, again, what Hedgeable shows, what I'm bought into, what we do similarly, and that's have a dynamic approach to invest in an optimal asset mix given market conditions. Now, there's the key. What are the market conditions and how do we react to them? So here's the big difference. If I'm going to call what we do market timing, it's not about predicting what's going to happen in the future. It's all about analyzing what's already happened in the past up to this point and saying, well, therefore, therefore, since the market has done this, I think it's prudent to begin to apply the following strategy moving forward. That's not a prediction of what's going to happen in the future. It's just saying we're going to dynamically react to what's already happened in the market. Big difference. I do not have a crystal ball. I have no idea. What I do know is, just like you know, and like just like everybody knows, what's already happened. And so here's the big difference. And Hedgeable talks about this in the terms of convex and concave. This is a great example. I'm not going into it here in this podcast, but what I will say is this, that the one of the big fallacies is that you continue to buy assets as you rebalance that are underperforming. Why would we want to do that? 
Whereas what Hedgeable and I do is this. We just step to the sidelines. If stocks don't happen to be the place to be, then you know what? I'm going to raise cash over a period of time, and I'm going to take that cash. We're just going to park it. We're going to park it on the sidelines. We're not going to take the cash and go buy something else that's underperforming. I'm just going to use it. I'm going to put it on the sideline until I'm going to take my stock cash until the market turns, until stocks turn and begin an uptrend. And now I'll be able to buy in at a lower cost at to a trending market that now is moving up. Not, I mean, this isn't, I mean, really, it isn't rocket science. We need, the, the most important thing in all of this is to manage the risk from a principal loss reduction standpoint. That's the key. You got to protect the capital. There's just no, there's no getting around it. We can't anticipate future market movements. We're just reacting what's already happening. Selling risky assets that are declining and not performing, that's not market timing. It's simply a way of managing the risk, all right? I hope you're grasping the subtle but yet in huge nuance to this, all right? Now, Hedgeable uses this philosophy. They do it a little differently than I do it. It doesn't matter. Buy into the philosophy and then go out there and, and, en and enlist the help. Whether you do it on your own, you want to read Mansonin's book, okay? No problem. He'll teach you how to do it on your own. Mansonson, he's that's what he's all about. A timing system that he's come up with. Want to put it into practice? I don't happen to use that. I'm not saying it's not viable. I just didn't go there. I just once I read his book, I believe that it can be done. <laughs> that was the biggest difference there. So just understanding, we have to, in my opinion, protect capital from market downturns. We have cash then to reinvest at a more advantageous uh, environment, and it makes a huge difference over time. It's the way to build wealth. I'm totally committed to that, to dynamically asset allocating, to not getting fancy, not getting tricky. We don't, I don't use, nor does Hedgeable use. We don't use options. We don't use futures. We don't use any of those derivative type, you know, vehicles. Cash. Cash is a great hedge against losing your capital. All right. So debunking market timing. If you want to define market timing as predicting the future, then you can't. And I'm all, I'm right with you. But if you want to look at market timing as reacting to what's already happened and reallocating based upon that, there's where we are. That's my philosophy. That's what I'm totally committed to. And I believe that that's the best way to sleep well at night, build financial poise, as well as building lasting wealth, as John Sosnowy would say. So again, read the books. 
I'll put them out there again on the website and to the other. Uh, if you go out on Podbean and you, or you go to my website to the podcast webpage, uh, you'll see the different podcasts if I have extra uh, resources for you to plug into. They'll be out there and dig into this stuff. The biggest thing is, hey, gang, if you're a client of mine and you're bought into this and you believe it, share this with some folks. I'd love to build my business, but more importantly, I'd love to have them call me. But more importantly, as John said in his book, we can save a whole generation of people from what's inevitably coming down the pike with market corrections. Don't have the crystal ball, but it's there. Share this. Share it with folks. Let them ponder it. Let's think it through, and let's change the face of investing so that we all can prosper. So that's the podcast for this week, uh, gang. It's, it's episode number two uh, in this um, myth-busting uh, series that I'm doing. I'll do another one next week based upon diversification being, you know, pie charted to where we need to be in multiple places all the time because something's going to be doing well and something's uh, not. That's probably true, although I just showed that correlations are a lot more closely tied than they've ever been. But here I'm going to leave you with this thought for next week's podcast. Why do you want to invest in something that's just not performing? And I'm going to leave you with that. Say have a great week, and I will see you again next week. Thanks for listening.